I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew uh, chapter 18. We're going to read verses 23 through 35 as we continue to look at the parables of Jesus. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. I think perhaps, and I could be biased here, but this might be the most ignored message of Jesus, which I know is a bold thing to say or a big thing to say, and it could be wrong, certainly. It's tough to ignore the gospel. There's kind of a line in the sand with it where you either cross the line or you don't. You either believe or reject but this message, I feel like, while it's, it's understood, it's clear, it's often just ignored. I've certainly seen that a lot over the years and been tempted that way in my own life. Let's read from Jesus, beginning in verse 23. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me. And I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. They came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then Jesus summarizing now, So my heavenly Father will do to each of you if you all, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Um, so this parable is often called, as I said, the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's certainly an entertaining story. It, it captures the imagination, probably better than some of other of Jesus' parables. You know, you can hear a parable about a mustard seed and be like, okay, you know, all right, uh, don't deal with mustard seeds all the time. But this one is poignant. It uh, resonates. The reason Jesus is telling this particular parable is actually in response to a question from Peter. We don't have that all the time. Sometimes Jesus, uh, I would say most often, 
is just giving parables as lessons, oftentimes giving uh, the deeper meaning of these things to his disciples privately um, and leaving the parable to just kind of resonate with the larger crowd. But this one is actually in response to a question. So it's meant to clarify something. It's supposed to be clear. and It certainly is clear. Um, the question comes to us uh, from Peter in verse 21. And that's where Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, as it happens, I have a brother. You might have met him before. His name is Nathan. He's a nice enough guy now. Um, but he was not my favorite person growing up. I will say sincerely, one of my great regrets is that he was not the best man in my wedding. We were not super close. I loved him. He was in my wedding, but not the best man he should have been. I apologize, uh, Nathan. Not for the first time. But we weren't close. It's fair to say that when we were growing up, I did not understand him very well, and he certainly did not understand me very well. Our interests did not overlap. I, sitting down to write out the sermon, I could not think of a single common interest that we shared. Not a single one. Um, well, not a sport, not a game, not a hobby. I could not think of a single thing that he liked and was passionate about that I was, and vice versa. Um, if I enjoyed it, it became a legitimate reason for him not to enjoy it. If he enjoyed it, I was not interested at all and thought it was ridiculous. We were fairly close. We were 21 months apart, born to the same two parents, raised the same way, and uh, we did not uh, get along all that great. Um, nevertheless, in our 18 years of living together under the same roof, I never once even considered asking my mom or dad, do I have to forgive him? Never even crossed my mind to ask that question. Never even crossed my mind. Uh, there was no amount of times that I could fathom that my mom or dad would say, all right, he has reached the limit. You don't have to forgive him anymore. You're done. I, I didn't know much about families at that point in my life, but at least that much was intuitive to me. Uh, I knew that one of my mom and dad's top priorities was that as a family, we love each other, and that meant forgiving each other. And that's how it is when you live with a family. I mean, right when you're under the same roof, under, in the same walls, you are living together. People are going to do people things. Uh, sometimes directly to one another. People are going to do people things, and there's just I don't see how you keep that together without some love and forgiveness. Uh, I mean, people do. Sometimes people stay under the same roof and the same home without love and forgiveness, but it's not very good. Never heard a positive description of that before. It's not what a family is supposed to be like. Now, we know that Peter, who was asking Jesus this question, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Peter had a brother, a biological brother. His name was Andrew. He, too, is a disciple of Jesus. But I don't think Peter is asking how many times does he have to forgive Andrew. Uh, I don't think he's asking Jesus about his real 
brother here, and I'll put real in quotations, he's asking about his other brothers, his pretend brothers, his brothers in Christ, the guys he calls brothers because he's supposed to call them brothers. We should read verse 21 like this, Lord, how often shall a fellow disciple or a fellow Christian or a fellow Israelite sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter is very helpful to us um, because he suggests a number. And his suggestion is up to seven times. Up to seven times. To which Jesus replies that 490 times is a closer estimate and then launches into this story. Seven is not close to 490. It's not even in the ballpark of 490. Uh, Jesus takes his, his suggestion and multiplies it so much that uh, it becomes very clear uh, that these are on opposite ends. of the, Peter's idea of how many times he should forgive his brother is on the opposite end of the spectrum of what Jesus is telling him. Uh, a couple things here, just a, a couple uh, comments. I, I won't be long. I, I did not grow up um, physically, regionally, around my... Uh, extended family. Um, I, I just didn't. I didn't grow up around my uh, grandparents, didn't really grow up around my, my aunts and uncles, all but a short period of time when uh, one of my uncles was here at this church, just a brief, uh, you know, several year period of time. That was really it. Um, my mom and dad never lived very close, lived in Missouri for a time, no family there, changed schools a lot. We were in a lot of different schools until we, until we came here. And I didn't have a network of childhood friends. Again, we change schools all the time. Um, you're changing grade school all the time. You're not really getting into junior high and high school with people who you remember from kindergarten, et cetera, et cetera. So my relationships as a kid were always, you know, cycling in and out um, uh, as, we, as we moved around. Didn't have a lot of friends uh, at church uh, either. Uh, when we came to this church, I was 12-ish. Didn't have a lot of friends. There were some... Kids I thought were going to be friends, didn't work out that way. Uh, when I got to be maybe a junior, senior, you know, I'd been around for a while and developed a couple of friends. I wouldn't say they were super close at that point in time. Certainly the, the people who I became close with as I remained in the church as an adult um, from that youth group experience grew. Um, they were people who also served the Lord and were very faithful, and my relationship with them grew. We were not best friends. Casey and I were not best friends in high school. You know, it's, it just wasn't the way that it was. He had a different, different crowd of people, and I don't think they were super interested in me, and feeling was mutual uh, for the most part. Uh, I didn't have a lot of close friends. The people who I did have at church who were close friends were much older. They were... Uh, you know, young adults themselves or older men or older women. Um, they played basketball with me or softball with me. They talked with me. They showed an interest in my life. They, uh, you know, they cared about me. They, they would ask me how I was doing. And, and many of you are those people now. I won't uh, put you on the spot and start, you know, getting all blubbery here this morning. But, but I grew up um, just the way it was that were, to me, the church uh, really was um, a familial to me, it really was like that. I'm just, just the way, just the way, you know, it was. Um, that's where I got those relationships from. So I have to confess, it's always been foreign to me 
Um, when a real family is given kind of a preferential place in a person's life as opposed to church family. Now, I'm just confessing that to you. I'm not saying I don't intellectually understand it. Just being honest with you, like that's that part of the human experience is is different for me. Um, none of us, by nature, think of God's family the way that we should. It's not in human nature. Human nature will always prioritize the human attachment. It, it always will. Um, but we are not called to live out as human beings under a human nature. We are called to possess a divine nature. That's actually biblical language, to put on the divine nature. What that means is we're supposed to be led by the Spirit of God who's indwelling us, who's living with us, who's a part of our lives. And if God is dwelling with us, a part of our lives, then He will bring about, as we seek to serve Him and follow Him, uh, the kind of relationships among His family that we're meant to have. Well, we have to be faithful. We have to follow Him in order to experience those. Um, I think Peter is really scratching the surface of this difference here. Um, because I don't think he's asking about Andrew. I don't think when he says brother, he's talking about his biological brother. He's speaking to something that's real for all of us. How should I think about, about God's people? Uh, specifically, when they hurt me or when they do things that uh, are sins against me. The second thing I'll say in that vein um, is that seven times is a fairly generous suggestion I've been a pastor now um, for 11 years, and again, in the church for a long time. Many of you have been in, in the church or churches longer than, than I have. Seven times is fairly generous um, uh, when it comes to how many times should I forgive my brother. Um, I mean, you think about this. How many people um, have you gone to seven different times because they've sinned against you and um, you need to make things right in that relationship? Um, there probably are. There maybe are a few, but that list is probably small. That list is probably small. So it's not like Peter is saying, look, is this, you know, fool me once, <laughs> shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Is this like the third strike, you're out? I mean, this is not like that with Peter. It's 490 times would be almost unimaginable. That's like marriage type of forgiveness there. Like uh, there are, there is a short list of people that I can recall that I have sinned against 490 times. That is a that is a small number. And uh, unfortunately, Allison is on the, the list. Uh, and uh, that's because we've had to figure out a lot of stuff together in marriage, you know. And Nathan is probably on that list. Probably might be more than Allison at this point in our lives. Uh, but, um, but it's a small list. It's certainly not the kind of forgiveness and, and mercy that we extend towards people casually. If you're forgiving someone basically indefinitely, no matter what, on and on, forever, um, <laughs> that's got to be a pretty important relationship to you. Um, so Peter's not being stingy. Jesus is speaking unimaginably here. Um, now, as we look at the story, let's make seven observations. I'm not going to put the text up on the screen. Just keep the observations. You have to follow along if you still got those books you're supposed to be bringing with you. Matthew 18 Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven, like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he'd begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had. few observations here. Uh, this is an unimaginable debt. 
probably heard this before. I'll emphasize it to you again. The entire tax revenue from the region of Palestine, it was called Palestine as an insult from the Romans. They named it uh, the province after they conquered uh, the land of Israel. They named it Palestine because Palestine was the Roman word for the Philistine. So they, they insulted Israel by saying it was the the Palestinian, the Philistinian land. So, it was, uh, you know, so, but the Romans said the entire, the entire region of Palestine, the taxes that should be collected were 8,000 talents. That's from uh, Josephus, who's a famous Jewish historian. In other words, when, I'm not talking about Jerusalem. I'm talking about the entire huge area at that point in time of Israel. The, the tax money to be collected annually for the Romans was about 8,000 talents. The idea that someone had somehow managed to borrow 10,000 talents is, I mean, again, Jesus is intentionally using an unimaginable number to describe this man's debt. As the debt is called, the result is an inevitability. I want you to imagine, uh, perhaps this is not hard for you to imagine, depending on whatever financial situation you find yourself in, but I want you to imagine carrying around the weight of what feels like an unimaginable debt, a debt that you know you cannot pay back, uh, perhaps wondering how in the world did I end up in this place uh, at the first place? How did, I, how did we find ourselves in this situation? I want you to, to try to imagine what it must have been like carrying around the burden of this, knowing someday you are going to be called to make a payment. And you do not have it. You are not going to have it. There is no plan to have it. There is nothing that you can do. And this man was surely bearing a sense of inevitability, of impending doom. Um, however this was going to end, it was not going to be a happy ending. Um, verse 26 says, as we've read, the servant fell down um, before the master. What else could he possibly do? Um, whatever payment he might make would be paltry. He falls down. He says, Master, be patient and I'll pay you everything. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion. Compassion. Compassion is extended to the man. Um, you cannot forgive without compassion. Not truly. The man is not met with anger. He is not questioned. How in the world did you come to this situation? Have you ever done that with your children before? I've often walked into my children's bedrooms and seen a great debt lying all over the floor and all over the place. And I've looked at the situation and surveyed and said, how in the world did it come to this? This is not what a bedroom should look like. This is not in, in, in accordance with the instructions that you've been given. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for an explanation. He also doesn't look at the man and say, well, we're going to Dave Ramsey, this problem. We're going to live on rice and beans and beans and rice for the next 35 years. And you're going to go work a second job. And is your wife happen to carry a job? No, sir. She raised the kids. Too bad. She's going to work too. And like, he doesn't do that. He doesn't come up with a plan. To pay all of this back. That's not compassion. And he's not bitter and angry. Get this man out of my sight. This fool who took all of this and can't pay. Get him away. He doesn't do any of that. No, none of that is forgiveness. Forgiveness does not hold the debt. Forgiveness does not 
harbor frustration and bitterness towards the debt. Forgiveness does not hold any semblance of it whatsoever. Forgiveness is extended with compassion. Verse 28 says, But that servant went out and he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him, not in the charismatic way, I presume, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, have patience with me, I'll pay you all. He would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. This is an unchanged man. This is an unchanged man. A hundred denarii represents a few thousand dollars. A denarii was a day's wage. A hundred denarii would have been, you know, three months of wages. They didn't make quite as much as we make, uh, generally speaking. Uh, so maybe if you want to say for us today, yeah, maybe, I don't know, 10 grand. I don't know. You figure it out. Whatever it means to you. hundred days wages. It's a debt. It's not an insignificant debt. It's not like, can I have, you know, can I borrow five bucks to get a coffee? Uh, would that buy you a coffee anymore? I don't know if that probably won't do it, right? I don't drink coffee. Uh, it might buy you two Diet Cokes. used to buy five, but it only buys two now. It's not that kind of a debt. You know, this is a serious one. This is like, I need to buy a car kind of debt. Um, but it's not an unimaginable sum. This is a payment. This is not a call Dave Ramsey sum. This is, a, I can pay this. I can handle this one. We can figure this out, right? This is one we can do. This man's viciousness and ingratitude betrays a man who does not know what it means to be forgiven. He's been forgiven. The weight should have been lifted, but he is unchanged by this. Now, we might say this story is somewhat absurd. Who in the world could act like this? And I agree, it probably is absurd. But this man is how the Lord sees his child, whom he's forgiven, who will not forgive another one of his children. Um, it doesn't, that part doesn't seem so absurd to us because... People wrong us, depending on the offense or our comfortability with dealing with the offense, whatever. We, we just, no, we don't do what we should do. So to us, it's not absurd. But this parable is not meant to show us what we think about the situation. The parable is meant to show us what God thinks of the situation. So is it absurd? Yes, this is absurd. God thinks it is absurd that a child whom he's forgiven is not eager to demonstrate that sort of compassion towards his other children, if that makes sense. It is a, we're, so don't miss the absurdity of it. This man is unchanged. In the Lord's eyes, um, someone who cannot extend compassion and genuine forgiveness towards a brother or sister in Christ is an unchanged person. I will go so far because of Jesus' Conclusion to say an unconverted person. Because you have to settle with how Jesus concludes here, which we go on. Verse 31 says, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. Because again, this is absurd. We're meant to see that they see it. They came and told their master all that had been done. And his master said, after he had called him, he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you begged me. 
Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you and his master was angry? Delivered him to the torturers, which to us seems extreme. <laughs> you know, that seems extreme. But this is not about, this is not a parable to show us how we see it. We know how we see it. That's not, Jesus is not answering the question how we see it. He's showing us how the Lord God sees it. Um, until he should pay all that was due to him. So we observe eternal punishment because you're not going to pay back this debt no matter what anyway. You're certainly not going to pay it back if you are under punishment and confined. And as I've said here, we will observe that this is God's view of us, not our view. Have you ever noticed how when we think through these things, our view seems rational? It seems perfectly reasonable to us, but we are not meant to live by our own human nature and instincts. We're called to live according to how God has called us to live, and this is how we appear to God when we don't forgive. Uh, we shall notice also that this is not up for debate. That's the last one. This, this is not up for debate. This comes to us in verse 35 when Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That is a very direct thing to say when you have just said, Deliver you to the torturers until you shall pay back every last penny. So I don't think Jesus is taking any further questions about this whole forgiveness matter. This is not one of those parables where it's like, well, I wonder if he means, or could he possibly, or what about this? So my heavenly Father will do to all, what will he do? Master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until, <laughs> that's like, you know, I can almost see Peter sitting there like, I thought we had a better relationship than that. You know, he could have he put that a little bit more gently. I was only asking. I mean, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? That's, how, that's all Peter said. And now we are ending Jesus' answer with, the Lord will deliver you to the torturers forever if you don't do what I'm telling you to do. Uh, <laughs> that is a direct, you know... I preached on this before, and I said in that sermon, that was probably the last time Peter asked this question. I don't know if it had come up before, but I don't think it came up again. I mean, that was, <laughs> it has the ring of a teacher who has said this multiple times, who has tried to address this the nice way. I, uh, I coach basketball poorly, as it turns out, but I coach basketball, and... Uh, you know, uh, I was at a practice the other day and, uh, um, we were doing, we're doing layups and, you know, I just told the boys to just be a little physical. And as Reggie goes up for a layup, this one kid grabs him by the shoulders and throws him to the ground and the whole gym goes quiet. And I said, as, as with a smile on my face, I said, now I want you to be physical and I appreciate your effort, but if you... If you hurt our point guard, you're going to run until you are a thin man. And, you know, it's like, I just, I want to get this point across very clear. This has the ring of Jesus having talked about this enough. Like, and, you know, we find out 
Jesus had talked about this a lot. Why, I wonder? Why did it keep coming up? Well, because I think it is at least one of the most ignored teachings of Jesus. Because it's easy to ignore. It's easy to ignore. Somebody sins against me, I'll deal with it my own way. Three applications. Three applications. We'll be done. Through the gospel, God has chosen to forgive us in Christ. And I'm not going to put the verses on the screen, but I'd like for you, if you don't mind, to take your Bibles and turn to them. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Of course, we could have gone to any number of passages for this point. But the point must be made. It's crucial to the parable. And so we'll make it briefly. We won't neglect it. But we also won't dwell on it for an extended period of time. The man in the story who has the unimaginable debt forgiven is meant to represent us. We are the ones with a debt that we cannot pay toward God. And Jesus is God's compassion toward us to pay the debt that we cannot pay. And when we come to Jesus for forgiveness, we're not merely said, okay, do the best that you can, but I'm not going to forget that this happened. We don't get that. We don't get the bitterness and the anger from God when we come to God in Christ. We have true compassion, true mercy, true forgiveness. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1, just one verse is all, all we'll read. In Him, this is Jesus. Jesus is the Him. In Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. As it turns out, Jesus submitted himself to the torturers for us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And we could go on and read which he lavished upon us, and we could just continue this train of thought. In other words, when we experience forgiveness from God, it's more than just get out of my sight. It's you're forgiven. Now let me show you what it means to be in good standing with me. Let me show you what it means to be a friend of God Almighty. Let me show you what it means to be a child of God. You know what it's like to be a child of the world. Now let me show you what it's like to have me as a father. So we are the one who has been forgiven, who's had our burden unloaded, who's had the debt paid. Second application here. So we are commanded to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a suggestion. At no point is it alluded to that this would be a good idea, but optional. If you would turn to Luke chapter 17, we'll just read four verses there. I promise we're not scaling. The next one won't be 30 verses or anything like that. You go from one verse to four verses. We can handle it. Luke chapter 17, just the first four verses will be sufficient for us. It says, 
Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, offenses are sins. In other words, Jesus is saying it's impossible that people are not going to sin. People are going to sin. Okay, But he says, woe to the one who leads other people into sin. You know, so the false teacher, the, 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 the person who's leading people into sin, woe to that guy. But again, from Je it's impossible that offenses aren't going to come. And then, verse 3, take heed to yourselves, be careful. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. We don't use the word rebuke very much. Um, so we might have a bad connotation for what it means a rebuke isn't mean. A rebuke isn't cruel. A rebuke isn't vicious. A rebuke is when you go to someone and you tell them their fault. You do it privately. You do it sincerely. Galatians tells us you do it kindly and gently. But you rebuke them in the sense of you tell them this was wrong. I want you to know this was wrong. If your brother sins against you, you go to them privately. You don't need to talk about them behind your back. Behind their back. It'd be funny if you talk about behind your back. But you need to go to them and you need to tell them this was wrong. You did this. This wasn't right. It says if he repents, forgive him. Seems like a fairly simple process. And then Jesus, this is why I think he's pretty fed up by the time Peter asked the question in Matthew 18. Jesus says very clearly here, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, Perhaps this is where Peter got the whole seven thing. I don't know. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, <laughs> I want you to imagine someone wronging you. And you do exactly what you're supposed to do. You pick up the phone and say, hey, hey man, I... I don't want to make this awkward. I'm just trying to obey the Lord here. This is what you did. You shouldn't have done this. This wasn't right. And the guy's, you know, sorry, I'm having a bad day. I didn't, you're right. I'm sorry. I'll do better. All right. Glad I handled that the way the Lord, it's all right, man. I forgive you. Glad I handled that the way the Lord wanted me to do it. I feel good now. I had courage. I had faith. I talked to him. I'm glad, glad, feel good about myself. And then he does it again. I don't know how. I can't even imagine the kind of sin that someone would commit against you. But he does it again. Pick up the phone. Hey, I don't know what's going on today. I know you're having a bad day. We've talked about this before, but yeah, I'm sorry. It was wrong. I don't have a good explanation. I'm sorry. Um, will you forgive me? Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I, I get it. I mean, I've had bad days too. Two hours later, man, what's going on? I don't understand this. What? Can you imagine this whole charade seven times? That's what it would feel like, a total charade. Like, and you'd be feeling, you know what you'd be feeling in your heart, in your head. You wouldn't make the seventh phone call. You know, you know what you'd be feeling. You'd be, you, you know, this guy is not sincere. This is a joke trying to do what Jesus tells me. This is a joke. I'm not calling him back today. Maybe I'll call him tomorrow. You know, I mean, you get, you'd be running through the whole thing, Right? The absurdity is part of the instruction here. Even if this happens, 
you shall forgive him. In the Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to turn to this one, I'll just give it to you. But in Jesus' repeated sermon, the one he goes around preaching everywhere he goes. Now here's what he says, just two verses. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. I like that part. I like that part. But that's not the end. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't care for that one so much. So, we are commanded to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, forgiveness is reconciliation. Saying, I forgive you, and proceeding as if there is a debt that has broken or ruined this relationship is not forgiveness. Acting as if there is still something wrong is not forgiveness. And for this, you can turn to Ephesians 4. Look at verse 30, 31, and 32. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32. We will close with this text. There's a great lead-up in this call for Christian unity before this passage in Ephesians 4, but verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you're a parent and your child's old enough, you probably know what it's like to be grieved like this, to love your children, to care for your children, and to be grieved by what they're doing, to be saddened, to be stricken by what they're doing. God says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, with all ill intent. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Put all of these things away. It grieves God when we bear these things. And be kind to one another. Too many times I think we miss the simple command of kindness that's repeated so often in the scripture. It's not enough to be pleasant. We are commanded to be kind. How are we kind to one another? Well, we're to be tender-hearted not emotionless or thoughtless. We are to be moved with compassion ourselves. We're supposed to be compassionate people. Soft-hearted. Understanding. We're supposed to be forgiving one another, it says in the text. And how do we do this? Even as God in Christ forgave you which is what Jesus' parable is about. And how has God forgiven us? Completely, very generously, eternally, without strings of recompense attached. It's the very God who forgave us in Christ when He says it's impossible that offenses not come. We have a great high priest who understands our temptation and our weakness, 
who loves us, who saves us, even though he knows we will continue to sin, who does not require, in order to receive forgiveness, perfection or restitution or promises of never failing him again. No. We serve a compassionate king and we are to forgive as he forgives. I think it's probably fairly likely that there should be some conversations at the conclusion of a sermon like this. And I hope that there are. Let's pray. Father, I don't want to go to hell. Please let your Spirit's work in my life be genuine and saving. And lead me to faithfully forgive others. I ask the same for the people whom you've given me to pastor. Because I don't want them to go to hell. Help us to be tender hearted and kind. Forgiving as you forgive. Which will require an inhuman strength sometimes. I understand. And yet. When we are weak, you are strong and you will supply all that we need to obey your word. Thank you for all that you provided for us. I ask that you bless the work that goes into all that we do and the giving that we perform. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.